Dear Broadies, before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion in the United States. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety, and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions in this country. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans and people who live in America. Learn more by visiting choice.crd.co. That's choice.crd.co. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. You can find a list of where to donate in each state at donationsforabortion.com. That's donations, the number four, abortion.com. I have personally started donating to states where trigger laws go into effect immediately. Remember, even if you can only spend $1 or $5, that helps. There are things we can do to fight this, and it is going to take continued focus and community support. So I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. I feel like my whole role right now is like trying to push on an industry that I've like been saying the same thing for years and like it's not going anywhere, right? Like I want these companies to show real period blood and I'm volunteering my own period blood and they think we're not there yet. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Pod Broads. This is a podcast about women in podcasting and I'm your host, Alexandra Cole. Hello, hello, my broadies. I hope your week is going well. Frankly, I don't know how it is already the latter half of October. I have barely done enough spooky things yet. So I hope you have had time to do some so I can live vicariously through you. Please report back to me when you've watched Hocus Pocus and we'll see who got to sing along to I Put a Spell on You first. Okay, it's very important information. If you missed last week's episode, it is still sitting there ready for your consumption. I interviewed Jasmine Aguilera, co-host and producer of The Cut. And since publishing that episode, she is now not just a noise bender, you'll get the reference if you listened, but she's now also audio Gandalf. So that's an important update. Um, trust me, you're not going to want to miss this one. And if you already listened to it, DM me or email me at podgerland at gmail.com. I want to know what your thoughts were after listening, especially on the cancel culture and social media part. I am super interested in hearing what you, my lovely listeners thought about it. Now, as we move into today's episode, I feel like it's an appropriate time to share a teenage horror story of my own that happened when I was a freshman in high school. I had just bought this new dress from Forever 21, and if you were born in the early 90s like me, you know that around 2005, 2006, this was a prime time for Forever 21. Like, truly, it was elite shopping. The dress in question was easily too fancy for school, but I didn't care. I was in my experimenting alternative phase, but also trying to see if I liked dressing up more, and basically it was naturally black and off-white with giant polka dots and a bow-shaped collar at the top 
And the fabric was like this satin-ish type fabric that was probably just some form of polyester instead. And it was early in the school year, still hot outside. And it was the first semester at school since getting my period for the first time that summer. And this day I'm telling you about was only the second time I had ever gotten my period. And (laughs) I feel like every menstruator hearing this story right now knows that this is a foreboding piece of information that's about to erupt in the story. So just wait, we're almost there. But first, I have to add to the horror a little bit. I was in biology class, which for me at least was one of the most difficult classes I ever took in high school. And I was sitting in front of this guy who I was kind of friends with, but not so much that I truly felt comfortable around him. And also was like low-key the kind of guy who would like flirt and see how far he could get with it, you know? Anyway, flash forward to the end of that class, and it was probably the middle of the day. I hadn't changed my pads since that morning. I thought it would be enough. My period had been super light the first time that I got it. And lo and behold, it was not enough. And here is where the horror begins. I had arisen from my seat and looked down on my seat and saw like a little schmutz. Didn't know what it was. Kept moving. And then as I was walking through the halls, at some point, I honestly can't remember. And at some point, I realized that my dress was stained with red everywhere on the back of it. Okay, maybe not everywhere, but it felt like everywhere. And thankfully, or not thankfully, he didn't point it out, and nor did anyone else that I can remember. And I rushed to the bathroom. Again, I think I was alone. Maybe I had a friend with me at this point. I'm not sure. It was quite a traumatic situation. And so my brain probably protected me from some of it. But I had rushed to the bathroom and... (laughs) Luckily, that too fancy dress that I wore to school that day somehow magically did not actually stain deeply. And when I was in the bathroom washing it off, it started to come out. And all I was left with was a damp dress and thankfully no period stain on it. So I could go back to class, albeit with a damp dress. And the huge amount of shame and embarrassment that I was carrying with me for the rest of the day, not knowing who had seen, not knowing who was talking about it behind my back. And I think back to this moment as an adult, and part of me is like, if I had had just a little more education about flow heaviness, especially earlier on in your period, or at least my period, like how often I might need to change a pad, uh, how to put a tampon in, because I hadn't yet at that point how we shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that our bodies bleed once a month and sometimes bleed throughs happen. Like the whole event could have not happened had I had more education or if it had, maybe it wouldn't have been so traumatic. And I share this story as an intro to my guest today, Nadia Okamoto, who refers to herself in this episode as the period woman, (laughs) which I love. Uh, But she someone that I truly love and support in terms of what she's doing and putting out there in the world. And I just think about how different my experience with my period growing up would have been had the work that she is doing now been, you know, in, in the discourse at the time when I had just started learning about mine and my body. So a bit more about her. At 16 years old, she founded Period, an organization fighting to end period poverty and stigma. In 2018, she published her debut book, Period Power, a Manifesto for the Menstrual Movement with Simon & Schuster. 
And she is now the current co-founder and CEO of August, which is a period lifestyle brand that makes period care more sustainable, affordable, and healthier. It's 100% organic cotton and way more comfortable than the plastic shit that we've been wearing for years and years and years. And if you've listened to all of season two of the Pod Broads, at this point, you have already heard me share my own experience with the products and how much I love them and how I think you should buy them. And I promise you, I really mean it. And while we talk about some of that work on this episode, she is also with me today to talk about her podcast, Tigress, which she just signed on to continue working on with the help of DCP Entertainment, which is super exciting. And this conversation covers the podcast, the inspiration behind the name, and some of the musings she has shared on it, her experience with sexual trauma and PTSD, and some of the recovery practices she has done and implemented, and how it comes into her personal life and her professional life, and what it's like being a young founder, and the vast amount of awesome information she has about working in the nonprofit sector, some of the challenges in there and things that might need to change within it, and also how to respond to questions around quote-unquote period leave. So a quick final note, part of the interview is audio from Zoom, so a little different than the norm in terms of quality, but the conversation, highest of quality. I hope you enjoy. Let's get into it. Well, how, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, I crochet while I'm on podcasts or on phone calls. Just it helps with my like ADHD slash PTSD, like anxiety tremors. So I hope you don't mind. No, it's fine. I love it. But yeah, overall doing well and um, just kind of like slowly getting started with the morning. Yeah, yeah. Wait, so when did crochet become a part of your life? Like, how did you figure out that that was something that helped? Um, you know, I've, I've always been into crocheting since a really young age. I think I really started crocheting in like, mid, like in elementary school. Mm. But um, and I've always loved it, like kind of obsessively. <laughs> but I and then, you know, in college, and when I'm traveling, you kind of forget about it. And I picked it up again when I was in um, mental health treatment last year. And, you know, it just kind of became this thing that I was, there wasn't really much to do in rehab during <laughs> COVID. And so I was just crocheting for hours a day and um, in sessions. And it just kind of helped me focus and also just helped my hands stop shaking a lot more too. Yeah, yeah. I love that. So it's been good. Good. I, I know I saw that uh, you had like posted something in the last year. I can't time is like an illusion now but um yeah. you had like you made like this really cute like crop top I think and I was very impressed oh thank you no I'm I'm having a lot of fun with it. and now with sweater weather coming along mm. I've been like getting kind of more into wanting just to do a lot more like things that I can wear mm -hmm. just because like I'm you know I I'm like pretty cheap and frugal as a person I think it's like my Asian grandparents and me <laughs> and so for me like I have been like kind of taking all my stuff to the thrift store and then like making clothes and it's been really fun mm -hmm. nice nice how long does it take you to make like the crop top we'll go we'll go with that how, how long would that take like a few a few hours like mostly because wow. I I'm in calls all day, which means that I'm like crocheting all day, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, so I like to normally start off my episodes with asking the question, uh, who are you in your work and who are you outside of your work? So in my work, I am period woman, <laughs> like period obsessed. It's like what I 
you know, think about all day is kind of like period talk, period care, um, you know, engaging with, you know, followers and, and, you know, customers around how to improve period care. Mm -hmm. Um, Outside of my work, I think that I'm just like a very quirky, you know, I love to work out, I love to eat food. And, you know, uh, I'm much more of an introvert in my personal life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It, it was funny, I was actually listening to an episode of your podcast, Tigress, which we'll we'll get into a little bit during this chat. But there was an episode where you're talking about your boyfriend. And there was this moment that you shared about how you two I don't remember if it was like a first date, you, you can correct me, but it was it was like one of the first meetings and you like snuck up to the roof and like had this conversation. And there was a part that you reflected on about how he asked you, like, who are you? And you started like rattling off all of your like work stuff or whatever. And then he was like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. But like, who are you? And I heard that and I was like, oh, I love that that is like reflecting the question that I'd normally start off with because I mean, we so typically start with work and associating that with identity. Yeah. And I ask that question and I'm always like, shit, what would I say to that question? Like, it's kind of hard. But it's when he did ask you the second time, do you remember what your response was? Well, yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's really interesting because he was kind of the first person that ever asked me anything like that. I think that, you know, growing up in, you know, both in my family culture, but also like with. at the school I was going to I think everything when you were introducing yourself was like who are you where are you from what do you do what do you want to do you know and I think it was very like kind of social climbing in a way especially like from a career success orientation and I mean what was interesting is I think from a dating perspective like you know my career has been a huge part of like my dating life Mm -hmm. right is like it always kind of seemed like why someone was interested in me and kind of like what intrigue, what kind of piqued their interest initially. And with him, it was just like completely the opposite. And to be honest, like when he asked me that question, like, well, no, who are you outside of your work? I think I didn't really have an answer. And I was just like, so stunned. And I think almost like offended, like, you know, <laughs> I like offended is kind of the right word, which is like, what do you mean who I am? Like, it was kind of like, do I need to be more than that? Mm, like, yeah. you know, am I kind of missing something? Like, and and I think it was also usually, especially on first dates when, like, especially also dating older, you know, like, <laughs> I think people were always like, oh my gosh, like, what do you do? Wow, that's amazing, like, blah, blah, blah. blah. And yeah. instead he was, like, not reactive. And he, like, kind of was, like, it wasn't that he was disinterested. It was, like, I think he, like, he honestly was more sad. He was, like, well, you know, don't you want to be something, you know, outside of that? And I think that it, that sympathy that I could read in him was like shocking and almost like disappointing in the sense that I think that there was a part of me that was performing, like, you know, I want this cute guy to be impressed by me. Why isn't he impressed with me? Oh wait, like now he's feeling bad that I don't have a sense of self outside of work. And that being such a foreign concept to me, that, that obviously really stuck with me. Well, and that piece that you bring up about just the the reactions people will have to you because what you had like two different companies slash nonprofits within the span of like being 16 and now you're 23. You know, my whole career has been like, you know, a lot of involved involved being the youngest person in the room. And, you know, I think I see it a lot now with like young entrepreneurs, like in these spaces, which is like when you say who you are, what you do and how old you are, mm-hmm. people's reactions like, 
oh my gosh, like it's kind of this glorification (laughs) of, you know, being young and doing things. And it's really interesting because I think that, you know, then when I'm around people my age, like, I think that one of the beautiful things about being in this generation is that like, I feel really lame in comparison to a lot of my peers, not even from a professional perspective, but like, Mm. for example, my younger sisters are like incredibly artsy and creative Mm. and like kind of the joke in my family is that like, I am the one who's like not in tune with art and being alternative or, you know, being cool uh, or being stylish, you know? Mm. And I think that there is this kind of, you know, when you interact with people who are of a different generation and kind of this concept of building a platform or being a young entrepreneur, it, it feels like a foreign concept. There's this kind of like, oh my gosh, I've never seen anything like you, like kind of like a different species. Mm. And, you know, to be honest, like, I think that's very addicting as a young person, yeah. right? Like you walk into every room and everybody's like, you're amazing. How, how do you do this? Who are your parents? You know, how are you raised? I want my kids to be like you. And I think that it kind of like, in many ways, it, it like looking back on my last few years, it's a lot of why I think that I became more introverted because mm-hmm. that was like my most of my interactions every day, right? Most of my interactions every day was kind of like less genuine relationship and more kind of people being impressed because of what I did. And I think my sort of young prepubescent mind taking that as, okay, I am valued and admired for what I do and not because of like who I inherently am. Yeah, I'm curious, like, how is that? um, And this is kind of coupled with... uh, the fact that you are a PTSD survivor and I know as also so, like a sexual abuse survivor is also someone who is a sexual abuse survivor. I know that that really impacts my relationship with trust. Um, but I wonder like that on top of having this experience as like a very young entrepreneur and going through the reactions of all these people, like how, how does that piece contribute to your relationship with trust just with like people in the world in general? I think it's kind of like, like how I always describe PTSD is like, it kind of feels like there is like the person who's going to murder you right around the corner all the time, right? It's like danger is right around the corner. And like, that's really, that's like kind of that moment. Like I can't watch horror movies, not because like I've ever experienced like, you know, kind of some scary exorcism ghost thing, (laughs) but it's more that like that feeling of like danger being around the corner is kind of like my resting state. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that for me, um, it really plays comes into play when I do think about my relationships and like, you know, in developing trust, which is like, I'm kind of always expecting for that relationship to end that person to leave, mm-hmm. or for my trust to be broken. And so what that means is like, it takes me a long time to trust, but, you know, I can be, you know, friends with someone and like, I have such a low expectation for that relationship that I do think it makes me a lot more closed off and it's Mm -hmm. something that I've been like trying to be really reflective upon and I mean another thing is like I just I think over the last few years I also just haven't focused on developing or cultivating friendships like I've Mm -hmm. really truly like my last few years before rehab where I wake up um, I barely slept and I work and I work until 3am I go to sleep and then you know like it wasn't ever like you know I I was never making time for those friendships um, in general. Is that something that you also feels like bleeds into like professional work or is it more so your personal relationships that that's like the biggest struggle in? 
you know, I think that a lot of my trauma is like in my personal life. So it was definitely more impacting in my personal life than professional. Yeah, I I guess I ask because I also am like, you know, on the route of figuring out, okay, what's the kind of the trauma map and where has it bled into and what pieces can I like identify to help me better understand um, what's going on when I have like reactions, you know? Yeah. Um, cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. I've, I'm always, I'm always interested in connecting with other survivors to see what their experience is. Cause I think that, yeah. I mean, our actual experience with what happens is different, even if there's some similarities in how it then affects you later on. But ever, I mean, everyone's experience is so different. Um, yeah. So yeah, I appreciate you sharing. Something I wanted to ask you actually came from an interview that you did with Scissoring Isn't a Thing, who uh, also have on this podcast this season. And you said, you were talking about how every time you've pushed yourself to be more open, there's been so much community that has come from it. And it's definitely something that I've experienced as well. And it's such a helpful thing. But I, I'm just very interested in investigating like personal boundaries with it and how we navigate those mm-hmm. things. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what is it? look like or feel like when you've crossed that boundary with yourself like you didn't mean to but you're like "Mm, that was either like an overshare or that didn't feel good but I thought it would feel good (laughs) like you know what I mean like I've definitely had moments where I've like tweeted something and then I've been like "Mm, you did that in a really not great state so I've like had to figure out like when is it okay to like share pieces of myself and how to share them so I wonder like yeah, how does it how does it feel when you're like, oh, oh, <laughs> this is not the move. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't I don't think I'm at all. I don't think I at all should be like a example for personal boundaries <laughs> with social media. Like, I think that for me, like, you know, I mean, I okay. So like, part of my PTSD and like borderline personality disorder is like I have no boundaries, like with myself, and it's kind of like I think it is very related to trauma, right? Like the personal boundaries I might have expected being young, like we're not, you know, respected, right. And so I think that for me, like now when it comes to like, my own personal or like psychological safety, like the idea of setting boundaries is like, still is like, honestly, like one of the main things I'm working on, like, in my own mental health and like therapy journey. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think that like, for me, I think I, you know, I created my first social media profile when I was nine. And so for me, because I grew up with it before I even got my first period, social media is not really like something that I learned to use. It was like something I grew up with. Right. So like, I think if anything, I don't have, I, there's never a decision-making of like, I don't know. I don't even know. It's like, like, for example, I've been posting period blood and vaginal (laughs) discharge on social media and people are like, ew, this is so gross. And I'm like, yeah, it is like, but isn't that kind of the point of like why we're sharing it? Or like, I think I've always like to me, it's different because I think about the things I um, personally am going through, like mental health, depression, you know, being a survivor, go, like dealing with my period and or even being like a female founder. And to be honest, like all these experiences leave me really feeling lonely mm. And I think that what I've learned is like, 
so much of these experiences I feel lonely about because society has conditioned me to like stay silent about it. Mm -hmm. And when I do talk about it publicly, I'm introduced to, you know, swaths of people who, you know, are, are literally saying like me too, you know? And I think that for me, I mean, honestly, I think that for me, like I, there's a lot of thinking that goes behind every time I, before I say something, right? Like when I, when I post vaginal discharge online, like, it's taken me 23 years to get to a point where I feel like comfortable doing that, yeah. you know? So I think that there is an element of like, there has been thought behind it, but I, it's not like something I really like think through, like, you know, is this, I, I do, th- I, for me, I, I, I'm trying to really always respect other people's boundaries, right? Like we're doing a podcast interview with Henry or about Henry. That was like a big thing because he's very private mm-hmm. and that's something I want to respect. So I, I I know in my mind, like, the, 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 I'm not going to expose his personal life or, you know, kind of more about his, his career, you know? Yeah, definitely. So I definitely want to talk a bit about Tigress and just kind of your process in creating it and some of the other stuff that has, like, come up along the process. So when did you start getting into podcasts? And when you got into them, was it like, oh, I like listening to this or like, mm, I want to create this? Did it immediately go there or was it kind of a progression? Um, I think it was a mix of both. I think I really got into audiobooks. Mm. Um, actually, when Henry and I started dating, like he uh, he like has this thing like tinnitus with his ear. So we listened to audiobooks um, to go to sleep to like help to, for his ears to be more comfortable. And I just kind of fell in love with, you know, fell in love with audiobooks mm-hmm. it also really helped my insomnia of just kind of like being able to quiet my own thoughts and then you know again like falling back in love with crochet last year I would just like even this morning like I listened to the daily mm-hmm. uh, from the New York Times every morning <laughs> and I crochet and like clean the house and kind of like get ready for the team to come over and you know I don't think I, I for me I, I was never really into podcasts at the beginning but through my career doing, you know, advocacy, I was on a lot of podcasts. Um, but the thing is, is I never listened to like, I've never actually <laughs> listened to podcasts I was on, like even today, really? <laughs> I never like I, I kind of listened to like the Tigress ones, but I only listen, I kind of skip through it. Um, just so I know, like the quality is good enough. Mm-hmm. But it's completely unedited. And the reason I had to sign with the team is like, I was like, I had so much anxiety about it. Um, but like the first audiobook I ever, you know, had any interaction with was like my own was recording my own audiobook. Mm. And then I got into audiobooks a few like few years later. I think honestly for me, Tigress and why I, I hope that it feels raw and authentic to people is like the idea of Tigress really started as like an, my own accountability tool to just like vent and like create space in my day where I was taking a pause and reflecting on life and originally it it was just like voice memos and then I was like not doing the voice memos and I think part of me was like well if it's not going anywhere what's the point so then I just started posting them and you know to be honest like I think you know when you and I talked first like you know a few months ago (laughs) yeah there was no part of me that was like this is going to be a podcast it's just like you know here's something I'll just (laughs) tell my followers is there yeah and it was actually really beautiful because I started having people being like hey are you okay haven't heard you on Tigris in a while Mm. right and it was like well, yeah, I haven't been on Tigress. And honestly, it's been like, I haven't taken time to reflect or do mental health, like I'm kind of hitting a low spot. Yeah. So actually, what's been really wonderful is it's kind of been like an accountability tool in the sense that 
like when I'm feeling really depressed, like I don't record. So, so yeah, but I, I, I again, like, I think a lot of it has been, you know, not very conscious. It's been kind of like, oh, this is just going to be a place for me to vent. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the name. Why, why that name? So Tigers is like a word that I've played around with a lot. Like it's actually like a huge, um, I've always, like, I've always kind of been like, you know, ashamed of being Asian American. Mm. And I think, you know, the kind of the phrase tiger mom has like followed me my whole life of both being my own tiger mom, but like people expecting that I have a tiger mom. And I think that when you think about Asian Americans who, you know, were kind of big authors and created these cultural moments of recognition for Asian Americans, like the aspect of tiger mom really kind of follows me and I hate it. Like, I, I don't like how, you know, it kind of influences people's assumptions about me or like people's assumptions of like why I do the things I do, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the way to like why I went to Harvard, you know? Yeah. And I think that for me, like tigress just kind of became this word that I was always kind of telling myself of like, I'm fuck this tiger mom shit. Like tigress is this, yeah, I don't know, just like this persona of like reclaiming, you know, what it means to be like an Asian American woman Mm -hmm. in today's age. I also think that Tigress is such like a sexy thing. Mm -hmm. Like when I, so I like loved the movie Kung Fu Panda, (laughs) like the first one, not the second one, but like I love the movie Kung Fu Panda and like the character of Tigress to me was just like always so sexy and like, you know, kind of like intense, but hard on herself. Mm -hmm. And um I mean, I also like, I think for me, like watching Tigress, I had like such a crush on Tigress or watching (laughs) Kazu Panda, like I had a crush on Tigress. And so I think that for me, it was just kind of like a character and persona that I always just like embodied. And so it wasn't even like a question or brainstorm of what I would call it. I was just like, if I, you know, this is who I am and this is who I want to embody. Mm. (laughs) I've actually never seen Kung Fu Panda. it's so good (laughs) i i mean obviously i i like remember when it was like very much in in pop culture and now i'm like oh maybe i need to go i'm gonna like google this character right after this this call because oh my god like (laughs) it's just like like when i think about it it's so funny because like so i like identify as pansexual and Mm -hmm. like people always ask me like when did i know and to be honest like i don't even think there was like a moment where i knew i just think it was like more and more so when I look back at my childhood and I think about like which characters I had crushes on Mm -hmm. like which characters like you know in movies or books that I was obsessed with or that I wanted to like know more about or like that I dreamed about like Tigress is like kind of like a weird (laughs) example of one of those things where like I watch a movie and like you're not like Tigress is such like a side character and yet like she was the one that I was obsessed with (laughs) I'm just thinking about like all of the all of the animal, like, animated movies. Yeah. That, like, people's, like, sexual awakening. Like, I think of that the one, like, Lion King's of, like, Nala just, like, looking up at, at Simba. Like, that's a quintessential example of that. But, yeah, it's, it's very funny. I actually was, I was, I was thinking about it recently. My sisters and I, we always joke. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Sing. It's, like, one of the new musical movies. I think I did. And there's a character who's, like, the gorilla. <laughs> And he's like this really shy Australian um, like gorilla that sings. Uh-huh. And I remember my sisters and I watching it. And there's this one moment at the end where he sings like I'm still standing by Elton John, and we we're all just like, 
Oh my god! Like you know, just sometimes those characters where you're just like, wow. I love it. it. No sense. Oh my god! I I actually don't think I've seen that one either, but I need to. I I know uh, exactly what movie you're talking about, but I'm gonna yeah. have to go YouTube that after we chat. That's so funny. <laughs> If you listen to the pod broads, I'm guessing it's highly likely that you are either a podcaster or you know at least one person in your life who podcasts. So this is for you or for that friend. You know how much work it can be to create and promote a podcast. And more often than not, most of that time goes toward production and not promoting. What you need is someone else to take some of those production tasks off your plate so you can spend your time telling the world about your show. That's where Swell comes in. Swell is the first podcast editing service for women by women created by my friends at The Wave. If you want to get some much needed time back into your podcasting schedule, visit swellpodcasting.com and use my code podbrods for 15% off your first month. That's podbrods for 15% off your first editing package with Swell. So August is a lifestyle period brand and we make more sustainable tampons and pads. Mm-hmm. Um, and our hope is that our pads are softer, more sustainable, more absorbent. So, you know, while most period products take five to eight centuries to decompose and, you know, maxi pads will have enough plastic for like three to five plastic bags. Um, our products, our pads are fully biodegradable mm-hmm. um, in six to 12 months and have no plastic. We have our tampons have BPA free plastic applicators and, you know, we don't believe in the tampon tax, so we're tax-free. Um, and, yeah, we're just, it's been a really fun ride. We're about three months in the world, so we're Ooh. pretty new. Um, <laughs> but the dream of and team behind August has been kind of working on it since the beginning of 2020. Yeah, that, that was going to be one of the things that I asked you. When, when you say the team has started working on it, is that, like, when the, like, research inception point happened? Like, what was the moment where you were, like, you kind of learned about what was in these other products that many of us have been using for years and years and years. Um, I just, it's, there's such a lack of education of yeah. what these things are. So I'm always very curious, like how you came to find out about that. Or I know you did period move, yeah. like, like your nonprofit was all about periods and like helping people get access to period care. But I don't know. Yeah. What, when did you start? start figuring that out and like what was the research point behind that yeah I mean I've known about kind of the ins and out of period products for years and to be honest like I would have never imagined that I'm doing what I'm doing today mm. um I started on the nonprofit side and you know that's when I started my nonprofit I was purely focused on getting period products to people who needed them and I think along the way you know dealing with millions of period products uh a year like doing distribution (laughs) then working with those companies I learned a lot more about them then a lot of the period companies became clients of mine Mm. um and I was you know kind of consulting on you know how to talk about periods in a more positive way and so for years and you know with my last the last company I was involved with was a Gen Z marketing agency a huge part of what my work was like trying to push the companies as things I was not involved in like as a consultant, as an influencer to be more um, environmentally friendly, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that a lot of what August is, is like what I've tried to encourage the whole industry to be for years. Yeah. And 
the moment it, of when we I really decided to do something is my co-founder and I, um, you know, we kind of accidentally became best friends you know, <laughs> through involvement in our last company. Yeah. And we had gone on a trip together just as like, you know, let's just kind of go do an impulsive vacation because neither of us were really good at taking vacation. And while we were there, all we were talking about was just kind of like feeling unfulfilled in our current roles and our current work and kind of feeling like, you know, I'm hitting a wall. Mm. And that's very much how I think I felt for a couple of years in like my own career. Like I had just handed the reins over to new leadership with my nonprofit. And I was just like, I feel like my whole role right now is like trying to push on an industry that I've like been saying the same thing for years. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not going anywhere, right? Like, I want these companies to show real period blood and I'm volunteering my own period blood yeah and they think it, we're not there yet yeah. right and so I think that a lot of what August became was like him and I looking at each other being like well maybe it's time like maybe we've kind of tried to do it from this angle of an external consultant and maybe it's kind of time we take our own advice and, yeah. and put it into action and that's that was kind of what happened in January and so I really think of that kind of trip as, you know, when we spent a few days just like constantly talking about it, weighing all the pros and cons, um, you know, doing our own research um, and, and yeah. Mm -hmm. And having come from nonprofit and I ask as someone who like my first real entry point into like career after I graduated undergrad was in the nonprofit sector and very often that can, the vibe is like, <laughs> you should be volunteering your time and be grateful for the little mm. amount of money you can make. And like, you know, if, if you're, if you're doing something for profit, then you're not doing it in as altruistic a way or like, you know, like there's, there's like a morality factor yeah. labeled to it. So I, I guess I'm curious cause now you're moving in, it's now moving into a for-profit sector. And so was that something you had to deal with? Like kind of thinking, was that something that affected yeah. you? Um, so what was that? I don't know. What was that like? How did you deal with that? I mean, kind of what you're talking about is a nonprofit industrial complex, right? Which is like capitalism sets it up to be like, you know, I don't know. It's just kind of this like savior martyr complex mm -hmm. in the nonprofit world. But I think that, you know, I went into the nonprofit world as a 16 year old purely because I thought you like the only format mm -hmm. of work was to to do something good for the world was through nonprofits, right? Yeah. I think that it was kind of before I started to really learn about more socially conscious businesses before like B Corps became like the big, you know, kind of trendy thing that they are. What is B Corp? And B Corp is like a benefit corporation. It's um, like the label of companies, you know, whether it be like Ben and Jerry's or okay. Tom's that have social impact mm. really embedded into like what they do. Got you. And I think that, you know, a lot of a lot of what I learned in the nonprofit side, like I went into the nonprofit side being like, yeah, it's volunteer. Like I didn't even know you could make money working at a nonprofit, mm. right? Like to me, working at a nonprofit was the people who were able, you know, who had the financial resources to be like a volunteer full time. Mm. And um, but I think when you work in the nonprofit space, you are taught just how much resources are everything, right? Mm -hmm. What is the job of every executive director? Like I was for six years, mm -hmm. fucking fundraising, you know, like that's what you're doing. And when you lead an organization, you're constantly raising money from grassroots donations, from private donors, like the majority of staff time in most nonprofits is spent fundraising, fundraising from private donors from corporations from foundations and 
to me, I hate fundraising. I even hate fundraising today, like in my own work. And I think that for me, like, I kind of got to this point where I was like, you know, and, and when I did make the transition to come to the company for profit side, I have gotten a lot of backlash, right? Like there, mm. I do get a lot of like, kind of comments from, you know, kind of young activists who are like, screw you for being capitalist. And I think that for me, like, I think my work in my nonprofit side really made me realize like, we are trying to do work in the community in, in a world where like 501c3 tax status makes us feel like, mm-hmm. you know, we are changing the system when in reality, being a nonprofit and 501c3 puts boundaries and restrictions around us, where we have to play the system and we have to depend on this system mm. for money and where donors are incentivized to give money given tax deductions, yeah. right? So I think that for me, I was like, every point in my work as a nonprofit was like, I want to make a difference. So I have to go raise money. And the more I studied like business and, you know, social impact theory, I kind of got to this point of like, but what if I'm leading from a place of abundance of like, I have these resources and I, those resources and this kind of passive income stream is meant to make an impact. Right. And I think that like, now I'm leading a company in which us existing is impact, right? Like being a company that has a presence where we're breaking the stigma and I'm not having to beg donors to be able to do that work, right? Like that is something where we are fulfilling a need by getting consumers period products that are better for them, better for the environment, better for the world. And in that we're fighting the tampon tax, we're doing give back and product and profit back to the community that we want to serve. And all of that, like all those sales generate more of a platform to continue making impact, right? So I think that for me, like my job is better, my happiness and like my mindfulness is better from a selfish perspective, but also like the impact we're able to make is completely exponential because our labor is, is dedicated to, you know, growing our capacity for impact rather than developing a plan, putting it together in presentation and then pitching it to get the resources to be able to do it. Right. And, you know, I say all this because like, this is my own personal thinking of like why I do what I do in the format that I do, but I'm not against nonprofits. Like I actually think that they're completely necessary in our society. But I think that for me, the obsessing over making this career shift was like very academic almost. It was like, you know, really like, okay, let me, let me really be self-critical about how I as Nadia in the work that I love to do and that comes naturally to me, how I can make a career shift that that one expands impact two is in line with my values and three like is in a way like, you know, like I honestly got to a point with the nonprofit where I was like, I am, this is not good for the nonprofit. Like I have grown the nonprofit to a size where I am completely underqualified to run it, yeah. right? Like I have no experience running an organization with a multi-million dollar budget, right? Yeah. And like, I do not under, like I, this needs to go to someone else. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. And I'm very happy with kind of where it was. And I'm in awe of how, like the current team and how they've been able to kind of carry on that impact. Yeah. I love that you say that because I think that for people who have started something, it can be sometimes hard to recognize when like they might not be the best person for it anymore. And I think that's so important. And I also, I mean, just to that, that point of how nonprofits also interact with capitalism and are a part of capitalism. I love that you broke that down because either one is still a part of it and we have to figure out which one Mm -hmm. you can actually be not just the most fulfilled, but like 
a little selfish, selfish to the point where you're able to take care of yourself so you can take care of others. Like that's always the thing. And it's like, if that's not the case, then it's only going to be a detriment to the cause. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that there's a lot of critique going around, around like youth activism right now, because and I think that there's a lot of validity to it. Mm -hmm. You know, people who are able to do volunteer work from their passion point as a full-time focus mm -hmm. means that they have the financial means to have their needs met otherwise, right? And so why is it that when you look in volunteer movements, right, like where people aren't paid to do the on-the-ground work that they're doing, like, and I'm not saying everybody who does volunteering is rich, like I'm not saying that at all. Right. I'm saying more like, I think like by fact, like you, you need to be fed. And we live in a world where like being fed and having shelter costs money, yes. right? So like that exactly. money needs to come from somewhere, whether it's from your parents, you know, or a grant or otherwise. And I think that for me, like, what I think people don't realize sometimes when they like critique my, when they're like so upset that I, like I have gotten pushback of like, why did you need to have health insurance as an executive director? And it's what? like, well, like shouldn't people who work at nonprofits have like, you know, like yeah. there's things like that, that I think we are grappling with. And like, there's a lot of like, I think one of the hardest things for me, you know, running a nonprofit was like, donors don't want to give money to operating costs, right? Donors want to give money to things like this money is going directly to like the impact into the service. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of donors' minds, that isn't paying salaries. That isn't keeping the lights on in the office, paying warehouse space. That's like paying for the actual supplies or services that are going to, you know, somewhere. Yeah. Right. And I think that one of the hard things, and I, you know, now I've been kind of just consulting and advising nonprofits, like kind of a side gig was like, I talked to so many founders or leaders of nonprofits who are like, we have all this money for programs, but like, I need to hire program staff and I'm not getting the money to do that. Yeah. Right. And I think that it's such a challenge in the nonprofit format. Um, and I think people also don't realize like I, along with so many other peers in the nonprofit space, when I was working there, we're working multiple jobs. Mm -hmm. Like yep. why, why was it that like, I couldn't give my 100% attention to the nonprofit because I had financial things that I needed to take, take care of. And for the first three years, I wasn't on salary. So I was working like freshman year, six jobs, like Jesus. six different jobs. Yeah. And um, I started another company and I had a team that was like, where are you? You need to have your full focus. And I'm like, if I put my full focus on it, like I'm going to have like a life I can't afford, yeah. you know? And I think that that is something that fundamentally needs to change in the, I think also like the nonprofit industrial complex, like what's confusing about it is, there's a really blurry line between what is volunteer work and what is paid work, mm -hmm. right? Like when you think about it, what is the difference between what a development director does in comparison to a volunteer grant writer, you know? Mm -hmm. And what about like, um, you know, do you have all these professionals who are volunteering their time um, to help with brand strategy, but then you're going to like pay uh, marketing director, you know, right. like, I think that there, the idea of volunteer work, like I'm not against it, but I think that it does create this blurry line that really mm. needs to be worked through. Definitely. Oh yeah. It's, it's, there's a lot that needs to, <laughs> needs to change yeah. in that, in that area. Um, and I just, I appreciate getting to hear your journey and insight on it. Cause I think it's, some, it's something that a lot of people, even people who are working at nonprofits don't have a lot of education yeah. around, which then creates a whole issue of them being able to continue to be exploited by their bosses. Um, okay. One more, one more period related question, because you're, you're actually someone I 
I'm very excited to ask it because I feel like you have way more knowledge on it than I do. And I've been kind of grappling with this, this issue. So something that I've been thinking about is this contradiction, but also reality of two things at once. And it's how periods do impact women's bodies in a debil- not just women's bodies, menstruators' bodies in a debilitating way. Sometimes, depending mm. on depending on your personal experience, right? And so there should be kind of policies or things set in place that acknowledge that, right? Like that's yeah. one thing that I've heard you talk about. And then on the flip side, it's also like sometimes these types of things get used to keep women uh, in terms of like kind of like gendered sexism in the workplace but definitely like other menstruators um like it keeps them from maybe like more senior positions or like certain jobs like people who will use that as like fire for like you know what I mean so like I've been kind of like trying to figure out this reality of both things like how do we navigate that especially in conversation with someone who would be like oh well but if you need like kind of these quote-unquote special things then should you be able to get the high paying job or like whatever? Like, I think, do you get what I'm trying to ask? Like, I feel like it's very complicated, yep. but I just wanted to hear what your thoughts are on it and how you, how you would navigate that conversation. Yeah. I mean, I'm, this conversation around period leave is what I'm, you know, I also kind of, you know, obsess over. And I think that, I think that it actually, you know, if you asked me this two years ago, I'd have a very different answer, <laughs> mm. which is like, I think we just need to have an open conversation around periods. But I actually think the more I have, you know, kind of push my own understanding of, to be honest, capitalism. Uh I think it kind of comes down to like, one, a few things. One period pain is very real, right? Like, I think that throughout history, people have been gaslit for having period cramps. And like, it just being a cramp, you can take Advil and move on. Mm -hmm. Some people have debilitating period pain, endometriosis, uterine fibroids, where like, you cannot get out of bed, right? PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Like these symptoms are very extreme. But I also think that kind of zooming out. So like all that to say, we do need to have a society that is understanding of that. And like that gives room and space for someone to like live and heal through that. Mm -hmm. At the same time that our society and our medical industry invest in more solutions for it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like why is it that we don't have a solution for endometriosis? Right. Right. Like, and how can we allocate more resources to the research being done to find a solution in that at the same time, it's like, in our society, we live in a society that perpetuates the myth of meritocracy, which is the more time and work you put into something, the more successful you can be. And maybe the question really is like, someone taking a week off because or a few days off because they're in pain, doesn't make them less, you know, able to perform a job, right. And I think that that like, like that, that's kind of my, my newer I think maturity kind of like being able to acknowledge that of like, this isn't just an issue of like finding solutions and giving sick days. It's also like reframing how we value and, you know, evaluate someone's potential in a leadership position. Right. Like, I think it's also like, I think about this a lot in the context of Hillary Clinton and like, even, you know, like female women in politics where people are like, Oh, but you know, 25% of the time she has hormonal changes and like, can't be president and make decisions. And it's like, do you not think non-menstruators have hormonal changes? Right. You know, like hormonal hormones exist everywhere. They manifest in different ways. And, you know, if anything, testosterone is like something that you know, like, <laughs> yeah. is going to cause more issues. So like, 
I think that a lot of it is just kind of reframing how we value and evaluate people and also like our furthering our understanding of like what menstruation actually is. Yeah. Yeah. I love that answer. I think that's great. And it's just helpful to hit on kind of those intersecting points and how you have to look at them both. You can't separate them when we're having this conversation. Also, I think one of my favorite things that I learned in this last year was that like during your period, your testosterone levels actually increase. And so it's, it's more on par with, um, what, uh, what men (laughs) are dealing with on a daily basis, which is kind of ironic and hilarious and annoying. Next week on the pod broads, we can be ourselves. We can grow alongside one another, make mistakes, we can have these hard conversations and still feel seen and loved and supported. And I think that's what stopped me in the past. Like I never, I never really saw that growing up. I never really had that experience with other women. And so like even like even recently we had a conversation where it was like hard and it was emotional. And like we could both walk away from it it being like wow like I'm so loved you know there was no judgment and like and I think that's what difficult conversations just require is just like that really open heart you know and it's vulnerable it's 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 not easy but um I think like with every one of those I'm just like oh man I feel like little healed you know I'm like just feels so good that's Lindsay Simpson She is the co-host to the Almost 30 podcast with her other co-host, Krista Williams, and we talk next week. Make sure to follow and subscribe to the Pod Broads wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Let's get it. Would you rather be able to free bleed the whole week of your period, but still have to do all the social and work gatherings you normally do? Or would you rather get time off for your period from work and like life things, but never be able to free bleed again? Um, I think I would say I would want to get time off from work. <laughs> yeah. Mostly because I don't think society is ready for someone to free bleed in public <laughs> events. <laughs> oh man um okay uh would you rather have to give up your instagram or your tiktok uh my instagram why i'm just more unfiltered on tiktok mm. i'm much more unfiltered on tiktok so it gives me less anxiety yeah fair enough i kind of feel the same if tigress was a scent what would it be Ooh, like cinnamon Ooh, i like Okay. Um, mm, Okay. What is something you kind of tie to your self-worth, but as a good thing that like helps you build self-worth that has nothing to do with work or your successes there? Oh God. (laughs) Mm, I think maybe like just being creative. Yeah. 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 I love that. Okay. Um, And if you weren't doing what you're doing now with period care, what would you be doing instead? Probably I'd be like a fitness instructor. Oh, interesting. Cool. Um, 
I didn't know what answer I was expecting, but that's a fun one. Um, <laughs> I like it. Okay, so final question is, how can my listeners support you and follow your work? Find me at Naughty with Komodo on social media and subscribe to August Period Care. Ooh, yes, definitely do it. I am truly obsessed. It's like, it's like I'm not even kidding. I would dread that week so much. And like now I'm like, oh, I'm not going to be as uncomfortable on my period now. And that's yes. like really exciting. Our original music is produced by Carrie Blue. The cover art was designed by Elsa Bermudez. And everything else is produced and edited by me, myself, and I, Miss Alexandra Cole. And you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at Podraland. And you can find out more of what I do at www.podraland.com. Sign up for my newsletter for more recommendations of women-hosted podcasts, related news, and special updates about this podcast. And finally, make sure to share this episode. Tag us in it, like that shit, give it a review. Anything you do helps not just this podcast get more exposure, but also helps these women's voices be heard by way more people. And ultimately, that's my goal. So let's fucking do it. Yeah. And I was like getting I was like getting set up for this interview and like